All right. Good morning, everybody. Uh, for those of you who are uh, just getting here with us, uh, my name is Amanda Neppel. I'm a discipleship director here at Hope Des Moines, and I am so thrilled to be hanging out with you guys this morning. It's a wonderful day. Um, I would love it if I could talk about some of the things that happened in the sports world yesterday. Um, I think my job would be a lot easier for me, actually, if I cared about sports. <laughs> but since I don't, um, no, I mean, I do. I mean, I care about all of you who care about sports, but um, I don't know players, I don't know teams, I don't know anything other than I know that the Cubs are in the World Series and I know that they're having a little bit of a rough go, and so I am sorry. I see your tweets and I see your Facebook posts and my heart breaks for you, but I have no idea what you're talking about. So... <laughs> Anyway, so that's how we're getting started today. Um, I was not here last night. Some of you, I know you double dip and you know who you are. And if you were here last night, you know that I was not. I was at my niece's wedding last night. And um, so there's proof, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. But um, I just want you guys to know that if you are throwing a party or whatever, and if you maybe need dancers, um, the Nepple family, we love to dance. And so if you need people to like get out on the dance floor and get things going, you could hire us. That would be fine. We'd probably even do it for free because it's a lot of fun. And then uh, it's really exciting on my husband's side of the family. That's my husband there. He didn't just steal some random baby, although he will do that too. Um, but that's one of my great nieces. I have two little great nieces and they are fabulous and adorable and tiny and wonderful, and so we got to see them, and uh, my kids were on their phones. That's when the toasts were going on, by the way, so um, after that, we went out and got our dance on, and we had a really good time, but I am so glad to be here with you guys today. Um, there's a couple of my nephew, one of my nephews in there as well, um, so anyway, it was a great time. I'm so glad to be here with you guys today. It's a wonderful day, um, not the least of which it's almost uh, November, which means that the selection business is almost entirely behind us, and that's something to celebrate, right? Amen. We are closing in on it. Uh, it's also a great day because, and even more so, and most importantly, we get to gather here together for worship. Isn't that amazing? The God who needs nothing from us, the God who we cannot give him anything that he doesn't already have, anything that he hasn't already created, but that God loves us so much that he takes delight when his kids get together and celebrate. Isn't that amazing? And so this is a good day. This is a day the Lord has made and we get to celebrate and gather together and be here together. We have this amazing scripture to talk about today from Philippians 2. This is, Philippians 2 uh, is really one, it's one of my favorites, and I am aware that I say that a lot. But Philippians 2 is truly one of my favorite passages. When I was doing children's ministry and, and we would, I was working with uh, all ages, but particularly with the fourth and fifth graders, during the season of Lent, we would ask the fourth and fifth graders to memorize Philippians 2, verses 3 through 11. And verses 3 and 4 are just a little bit earlier than what we heard read today. But Philippians 3 starts out and says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Think of others as better than yourselves. And then continuing in verse 5 tells us to have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. 
But those words, don't be selfish, don't try to impress others, they're amazing. And uh, we teach those to kids, um, but they are wonderful verses for all of us to know. And so that's why this uh, chapter here, chapter two in Philippians, is one of my absolute favorites. Um, We are beginning a new sermon series today, as you probably figured out by now, uh, if you weren't already prepared for that. But we are starting a sermon series, and for the next four weeks, we are going to be talking about Philippians. And then that'll lead us into uh, Advent already. Can you believe it? Do you have your Christmas tree out? Are you ready? Just kidding. Um, Kind of. Some of you, you know who you are. Uh, (laughs) But for the next four weeks, we are going to be in Philippians. And uh, we're starting here in chapter two today. Next week, uh, John will be back and he'll catch us up on Philippians chapter one. Um, But what's going on here is that Paul, the Apostle Paul, as he's doing his travels, he has gotten himself arrested for preaching about Jesus. And so when Paul writes his letter to the Philippians, he is a prisoner. He is on his way to see Caesar. He had gotten in trouble for talking about Jesus. And because he was a Roman citizen, he then had the right to ask for an audience with Caesar. And so that's what he did. And by asking for this audience, it basically, it really extended his life for a significant period of time because then they had to get him to Caesar and all of that took quite a bit. And in that time, that Paul then was going to see the emperor, to see Caesar, and while he was imprisoned, just because he had the right to go see him didn't mean that the Roman government had to care for him during that time. They didn't need to feed him. They didn't need to clothe him. They didn't make sure, need to make sure that uh, he was protected from the elements. And so Paul writes this letter to the folks in the church at Philippi because they have been helping to provide for his needs. They've provided for him financially so he's been able to eat and survive even while he is a prisoner of the Roman government. And so he writes this letter to them as a thank you for caring for him. He writes this letter to encourage them because they really are doing a a wonderful job of, of living out what it means to be followers of the good news, to be servants of Jesus Christ. And so he's writing this letter to encourage them. And he lets them know, because of what you're doing, the gospel's being spread all over the place. Even my guards are hearing the news of Jesus because of what you're doing. And so in spite of being in prison, in spite of all of that, Paul is so thankful. He's so thankful for the folks in the Philippian church. And he writes them that to tell them that. And he tells them that part of this joy and what he sees them doing that brings him so much joy is that they are imitating Jesus, that they're doing exactly what they're called to do. And so Paul is encouraging them and he's reminding them and he's saying, don't get caught up in yourself. You're doing a great job. Don't let that trip you up. Do not get caught up in what everyone else is doing or, or the comparison game. And Paul says that because from his position, he's saying whatever we're going through, whatever it might be, it's nothing compared to what Jesus has done. It's nothing compared to what Jesus has gone through. If you were here last week, you heard Pastor Mike talk about suffering, and you saw you know, that little blip on the piece of paper that red X marks the spot, and then, and then he talked about if that paper extended entirely around the globe. That suffering is there, and it's real, but in the context of eternity and in the context of what Jesus has done, there's nothing to worry about because Jesus has taken care of it And he's telling them to imitate Jesus. This Jesus who could have done anything, who was God, 
but didn't consider that something to cling to and instead gave up those divine privileges and took the position of a slave and was born as, of all things, a human baby, the most helpless of all. Not only then, once he had become human, he continued to humble himself and he died a criminal's death, and not just any death, but a death on a cross. And so Paul is saying, have the same attitude, that selfless, obedient attitude. And when we think about that, we know, we know how desperate our world is for that. Don't we, for a little selflessness, for a little less of the self-promotion that's going on? I mean, after all, like I said earlier, it is, it is election season, right? And so there is a lot of looking out for our own interests, and there is a lot of thinking of ourselves before others. It's kind of rampant. It's kind of crazy right now, and I, I don't know, this might just be me, but part of me thinks that one of the reasons that this has gotten so big and so out of control might be because we're asking our leaders, our political leaders, to do things that they are never, ever going to be able to do. But we demand that they make us promises that they'll never be able to keep. We demand it, us, we all do. Because we have this sense that, that they can actually be responsible for our safety or that they can be responsible for our success. And it is absolutely true that there are policies that impact that. I'm not going to say that there aren't. That is absolutely true. But at the end of the day, the job of Savior is taken. And the only one who can help us and redeem us from this condition that we're in is our Savior, this same Savior who died a criminal's death on a cross in obedience to his Father in heaven. So we feel this tension because it's all crazy all around us, but we know who our Savior is, and so there's this kind of tug and pull, and we are a little bit not really too sure of what is going on. And all I can say about that and all I really hope for is that November 9th, this is going to be done, and I pray and I hope that it is, it's you, it's me, it's Christians who lead this way in reconciliation through humbleness, through obedience, through prayer, because one way or another, we're going to have work to do when this is all said and done. And I know it's hard and I know it feels it feels like the challenges are, are insurmountable. Um, but I want to show you something here. This uh, picture that's going to be up on the screen is, uh, yeah, there they are, um, Clinton and George H.W. Bush. This is uh, the letter that I want to talk about for a second. Is from January of 1993. So I was a junior in high school, if you're keeping score. Um, but... Uh, this is amazing. So George H.W. Bush lost his reelection campaign. He'd had four years as the president, right? And he lost his reelection camp campaign to Bill Clinton. Now, if there is any human being who might have had a right to be bitter or to be angry, it's that guy. It's George H.W. Bush who had every right to be frustrated and upset. But he left a letter in the Oval Office for the new President Clinton at that time. And he left this letter, and it's, it's beautiful. He gets to the end of it, and he says, you will be our president when you read this note. I wish you well. I wish your family well. He realizes your success 
is our country's success. And this man says, I am rooting hard for you. Isn't that amazing? We don't almost know or even know what to do with that because it's not what we expect to see. It's not what we expect to hear. But it reminds us of what the Bible actually teaches us to do because the Bible tells us in no uncertain terms to pray for our leaders. The Bible tells us in no uncertain terms that those who we might consider our enemy, our enemy, our opposition, that those are the people that we are supposed to pray for. That that person who we look at negatively, that person is a child of God. No matter how hard it is for us to see it, and I understand that it can be very hard to see that reflection. So I want to challenge us as a faith community, as Hope Des Moines, between now and this election, how much time can you spend on your knees in prayer? How much? Can you outpray your spouse for the spiritual health of our country? Can you outpray a friend? Can you outpray your pastor for the spiritual health of our country? And it's not a prayer that your candidate wins, but it's a prayer that God's will be done in all of it. That God's will be done. Because unfortunately, we put God in a very small, very ugly box when we behave as though this election process is out of God's control because all we need to do is read our Bible and we can see really clearly that throughout history, God has used leaders who both feared him and knew him as well as using leaders who had no idea who God was and God has used them both for his glory. God has used them both to get his work done. So we don't need to wring our hands. And in fact, later in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 is one of the verses that I know that many of you have memorized. Don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. Pray about everything. Pray that the God who is the God of creation, the God of time, the God of everything, will make his presence known. He's here in this, but pray like a person who expects to have their prayer answered, that God will show up. Because I don't know what's going to happen, none of us knows what's going to happen with an election or with anything else, but God's got it. That much we can claim and that much we know for sure. So pray like a person who expects that God is going to answer their prayer. Pray for God's will to be done. Um, there was a movie that came out in 2003, switching gears here significantly, uh, a movie that came out in 2003, and it is Seabiscuit. Many of you I know have probably seen uh, this movie. Seabiscuit, uh, he was a racehorse. He had excellent parentage. Everything about uh, Seabiscuit should have made him a world-class racing horse. Um, but he had this tendency, he loved to take naps, he could eat as much as a horse that was like way bigger than him. This is actually my kind of animal. Uh, but he had all of these expectations placed on him. And he wasn't exactly living up to them. And in the 1930s, when this uh, movie, when this story takes place, 
Horse racing was a relatively inexpensive pastime, assuming you didn't get overwhelmed with the gambling, right? But a family could go and watch the horse race and stand. You didn't necessarily have a seat in the bleachers, but you could go and you could watch the action. And it was something that uh, brought people together. And so horse, horses who were good at racing uh, were kind of celebrities at the time. And Seabiscuit ended his career eventually as a horse who, up until then, won the most uh, money in his races of any other horse up until that point. So he turned out to be very successful. However, he had those things against him. He was small. He loved to eat. He loved to take naps. And his trainers insisted on breaking him, and they almost broke him completely until he found uh, a trainer and a jockey who were willing to give him a second chance. Let's take a look. Did you catch that line there at the very beginning? They've got him so screwed up, running in circles, that he has no idea what it means to be a horse. That's what I really wanted you to hear, and the rest is just really pretty. Do you ever feel like that? Like you're just completely and totally running in circles? I was thinking about this. Somebody, <laughs> have you ever been asked the question, you know, what do you, what do you like to do in your free time? What do, you like, what do you like to do with your spare time? That's one of those sometimes ridiculous getting to know you questions that in some circumstances you're forced to answer and forced to deal with. But what that question brings up for us sometimes is that you come to realize if you had a day, if you had a week, and you could do whatever you want, maybe you know what you would do, but maybe if you're honest, you have no idea. Because maybe you feel like you're running in circles a little bit. Because I think that what this, what busyness does for us is it fills in all those spaces and then we never actually have to get to anything because we don't have to deal with the question of who we are when we can very easily get by on the question of what we do. We don't have to deal with who we are because we can get by and in fact, we can be quite successful. We can be, a struck nerve there, I guess. <laughs> we can be quite successful simply talking about what we do and emphasizing what we do. It kind of keeps us from answering kind of this big question, right, of <laughs> who am I and what am I doing here, right? It's kind of a big one that we're all trying to figure out. And in Philippians chapter 2, as difficult as it is, Paul makes the statement, you're here to imitate Christ. You belong to God, and you are here to imitate Christ. You are a child of God, and what you're doing here is growing in likeness to Christ. And that's the most important thing, because Paul tells us that the one who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. That's in Philippians 2. But it's so easy to forget, right? Because we are so busy running in circles because we are trying to have the best of both worlds. We have really good intentions and we really want to follow Jesus. And so maybe we have this thing that we know is kind of causing us trouble a little bit, right? And maybe it's anger. And, you know, we get to the point where we realize that we have maybe messed things up at work pretty bad. We're in danger of losing our job, actually, because our temper has gotten the best of us one too many times. And so we, we say, Jesus, I have done everything that I can think of to do, but could you please, could you please help 
help me with my temper. I really need some help controlling my anger. And so the Holy Spirit comes in and, and, uh, and works with us and we feel so close to God at that time and, and works on our anger and we're, we're starting to hit on more cylinders now and we're like, oh, Holy Spirit, thank you. Jesus, thank you for answering that prayer and thank you for helping me with my anger. And then the Holy Spirit does this really annoying thing where then that's fine, but then the Holy Spirit wants to work on something else right? And so then we start to feel this tension where it's like, okay, yeah, thank you for helping me with my anger, but don't under any circumstances actually expect me to ask my spouse for forgiveness because you don't even know, right? And so the Holy Spirit comes in and keeps asking a little bit more and a little bit more, and we start to feel this tension. And if you can imagine this, imagine if you brought a plumber into your house because you've got leaky faucets or something. You've got a leaky or a, a leak in your wall and your pipes, and you know you need a plumber. So you call the plumber in, and that's fine and good, and you expect to get your pipes fixed, but what you don't expect is when this whole crew starts coming in your house, and they just start gutting everything. They're taking out walls. They're pulling up your floor. You know, that, in that kind of a situation, we would never stand for that. But that is exactly what the Holy Spirit wants to do in each of us. That is exactly what Jesus is asking for. Because Jesus isn't looking at us and looking at a temporary patch job or even a permanent patch job. Jesus is looking for and going to work in us a complete Overhaul because nothing less than a complete gutting, a complete rework of everything, nothing less is going to cut it because that's what Jesus died for. He died for the complete overhaul. And so many of us feel like we're running in circles because we want to have a little bit of both or a lot of both, right? We want to hang on so tight to whatever our imagination is of who we are, and we want Jesus to fix the things that we want Jesus to fix, but we really want it to stay over here so that we can hang on to who we are and we forget who we are and we run in circles. And that's why Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, count the cost. He tells us it's not going to be easy. Count the cost. Luke uh, chapter 14, verse 25. A large crowd was following Jesus, and he turned around and he said to them, if you want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone else by comparison. Your father and mother, your wife and children, your brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. He goes on in verse 28, but don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money, and then everyone would laugh at you, and they would say, there's the person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. Count the cost. Jesus says. It's easy for us to get frustrated and even disappointed or bitter in our walk with Jesus because we're trying to have both. We are running ourselves in circles because we want Jesus to fix a few things but not the rest of it. And again, Jesus says nothing but a complete overhaul is gonna do it. 
in the movie Seabiscuit, um, by the time they get to the final race, they've had quite a go. They've been injured, both the rider and, and Seabiscuit have experienced injuries um, that have kept them, you know, they've had to be rehabilitated, they've had to heal. And one of the biggest things that the horse, Seabiscuit, needs to overcome is the fact that when he was younger, when he was in his early training, because of these other properties that he possessed, uh, the laziness, the gluttony, uh, he was often the horse who was trained alongside another horse, but Seabiscuit's job was to pull back. And so these horses would get neck and neck with each other, and it was Seabiscuit's job then to, once, once this other horse saw him out of the corner of his eye, it was Seabiscuit's job to pull back to give this other horse confidence so that, that that horse could power through and win the race. Well, that's great for that other horse, but if you're the one who's always taught to lose, you're going to need a complete overhaul. All of that wiring has to be redone and everything has to be relearned. And Seabiscuit had a team and he had people that believed in him and healing that was being done in them. So in this last uh, race, um, take a look and see what the power of the overhaul, the power of others who believe in you, having all the people alongside you, it matters. Take a look. Jesus tells us that a complete overhaul is what's needed. But then we read in other places in scripture where Jesus says that his yoke is easy and the burden is light. And so the question is, how can it be both of those, right? Which is it, Jesus, what gives? Is it easy or is it hard? And the truth of the matter is that it's both. It's both. Following Jesus has a cost, but the cost has a purpose. Because once we figure out that every single thing that Jesus is doing in us is to bring us closer and closer to be like him, then indeed it removes a significant amount of anxiety. That the cost brings us closer to Jesus. That the cost is hard and it might require putting down every day that which is in us that seeks to look out for our own interests. And it means laying down every day our desire to think of ourselves before we think of other people. But the truth of the matter is we have a helper, we have an advocate, and we have a God who never, ever, ever gets tired of forgiving us. That every time we call on his name that he holds out open arms and he says, welcome back. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad that you are doing this hard work to become more and more like Jesus. Welcome back. Welcome back. And trying to keep a little bit of ourselves, whatever we imagine that to be, whoever we imagine ourselves to be, trying to keep a little bit of that while having a little bit of Jesus, that is what is impossible. That's why it feels hard, because we're trying to have a little bit of both. The road of trying to have a little bit of both is frustration and disappointment and bitterness and it matters. It matters so much. It matters because of the way trying to have both makes us feel now. And it matters because ultimately, like Paul says, eventually every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. 
So the only question is, how much Jesus are we going to have in us at the day when we bow? That's the question. How much will we have allowed ourselves to be completely overhauled by our Savior? And the irony of all of this is, by hanging on to our life, we are guaranteed to lose it. It's impossible. The only way we become who we truly are is by giving the whole thing up to Jesus for a complete overhaul. That's the only way we ever keep what we imagine to be our life is by giving the whole thing up. So instead, Hope Des Moines, I encourage you today and I invite you, I invite you to have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. For though he was God, he did not consider equality with God as something to cling to. But instead, he gave up his divine privileges and he took the humble position of a slave, being born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he didn't stop there. He continued to humble himself in obedience to God, dying a criminal's death on a cross. And because he humbled and because he obeyed and because he died this death on a cross, therefore God gave him the name above all other names. That at the beautiful and precious name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every knee will bow and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Amen. Amen. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I can't say it any better than that. So the band is up here and we're going to sing and we're going to sing Christ is Enough. And I pray today that as you sing those words, that it would be your prayer, that you would be honest and you would confess those places in your heart where you're not letting Christ be who Christ wants to be to you. We all have them. We all have those corners in our heart that we're trying to hide from Jesus. So as you sing this today, give them up. Give that up to Jesus. Let him be your all in all. Let him be your reward because Christ is enough. Christ is enough. Let's stand and we'll sing.